All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington, and today I am joined by Malika Pavand, a research scientist at the Institute of Neuroinformatics at University of Zurich and ETH Zurich. Before we get into today's conversation, be sure to take a moment to head over to Apple Podcasts or your listening platform of choice. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Malika, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here, Sam. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to digging into our conversation. We will be talking about your research, of course, and your keynote talk at Hardware Aware Efficient Training Workshop at ICML this year. But before we dig into that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in kind of this intersection of neuroinformatics and machine learning. Okay, thanks a lot. So uh, hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. So my background is electrical engineering. I did my PhD at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And during my PhD, I was basically focused on designing analog mixed signal circuits. So I was basically a VLSI chip designer, and I was interfacing silicon technology with novel emerging memory technologies. So these memory technologies are based on resistive switching. So how they work is that you can imagine you have a resistor that has a memory, and by applying an electric pulse to it, you change the state of the resistor in a non-volatile manner. But the cool thing about them is that they are very small, so they are nanoscale, and they can be integrated in a third dimension on top of the silicon technology. And as it turns out, these are, can bring like significant advantage to AI accelerators and AI hardware. Because as you can imagine, the key component of an AI hardware is memory, right? So you need a lot of memory to store a lot of weights, parameters, and you also need to read from this memory. And actually, most of the power in current hardware for, for training and inference goes into reading the memory. So current hardware has what is called a von Neumann architecture. So all the CPUs and GPUs where the memory and the processing units are separated. So you would have to go fetch data from memory, come back to the processor and do this all the time. Mm -hmm. And most of the energy actually goes into this shuttling of information between processing and memory units. So the idea is that we need to bring this memory and the processing units closer together. And these kind of memory technologies actually solve these two problems. So one is that they are small, so you can get a lot of density, memory density in a small area in the third dimension. And they have a physical property that they can do computation inside the memory. So if if you imagine if you have a resistor and you map the weight of your neural network as a conductance to this resistor, Hmm. and you apply a voltage as an input, then through Ohm's law, you get the multiplication, Mm -hmm. right? So you get V times G, which is a multiplication. And if you have a bunch of them in parallel, then through Kirchhoff's law, you sum these currents, and you get a sum of the product of the input to the weights. Basically, you get this multiply and accumulate operation or MAC, which is the key or the essential computation in all of these neural networks. So basically they bring 
the computation closer to the substrate, right? Like closer to the physics. Mm -hmm. And this, interestingly, is basically the what the idea of neuromorphic engineering field is. So neuromorphic engineering is the field that is trying to understand how computation can rise from an underlying substrate by getting more inspiration from how brain does this very exact thing, right? So in the brain, you don't have an operating system. The physics or the brain itself is the algorithm, is what is running the computation. And the institute where I currently am is one of the leading institutes in this field. And, and then after my PhD, I basically moved here. And my research has therefore been in the intersection of understanding neuroscience as basically an inspiration. Mm-hmm. And understanding machine learning as a guiding principle that kind of grounds this inspiration into math and something that we know would work and bringing it more to circuits and physics to implement more efficient AI systems. And uh, these kind of, uh, let's say, neuromorphic technologies is what we call them have the potential to solve some of the current problems that we are seeing in in AI. For example, that there is an exponential rise in the amount of data, amount of power that is required to, to process this data. And also, basically, that since increasingly AI is becoming part of our daily lives, privacy is becoming an issue adaptation of these devices to every to a personalized user is becoming an issue and therefore we are working on online learning which is the topic of my talk at at ICML this Saturday <laughs> nice nice and your talk is called brain inspired hardware and algorithm co-design for low power online training at the edge on the edge Exactly. In thinking about the kind of memristor technology that you're discussing, what makes that brain inspired? Mm-hmm. Is there some evidence that the brain has some similar type of architectures? I don't know if that's the right word for <laughs> right, it. Right, right. Structures, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of independent, but also related. So, memory, it's a memristor is a memory technology. Mm hmm. In a way, it's very independent from the brain. But what it is interesting about it or what it makes it similar to the brain is two things. One is that in the brain, like I said, the memory and the processor are co-located. So a neuron is really sitting next to its synapses, right? You have a soma and then you have these dendrites and dendrites are taking information and these two are really co-located. They're not separated. Mm-hmm. And these membership devices are enabling these co-location by being very small and being able to basically sit, let's say, on top of a silicon neuron. So basically, if you make a silicon neuron and you make the synapses with these membership devices, they are really co-located. Another thing is that a membership device kind of, I guess, in an abstraction level, works like a synapse. So a synapse, basically, you can, you can think of it as a really like a conductance, right? So if, if the conductance or if the weight increases of a synapse, it is as if the path resistance goes down. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of model that like a resistor that has memory that can change. And interestingly, the brain basically sends out information with what is called as action potentials or spikes, right? There are these short electrical pulses. Mm-hmm that the neurons receive, they integrate, 
And then once that integration passes a certain threshold, it sends out another spike. So that's basically the information processing pipeline in the brain. And a memristive device basically could act like the conductance or the or exactly like the synapse. And the way that we read and write from these devices are actually also through pulses. Okay. So in that way, they are very similar. Got it. Got it. And you mentioned online learning. Where does online learning come into the picture? So online learning come into the picture in a way that, so basically this memristive device can change its state, right? Mm -hmm. And because it can change its state, it's good for online learning because what we can do is that we can, when we talk about the edge, right? We're talking about being at the close to the sensors. Mm -hmm. So these sensors are streaming information. And then when based on this sensory information that is arriving, we can adapt our system to these input. And to adapt this system, we have to change these resistances. And this device is capable of changing its resistance through pulsing in a non-volatile way. And that is why it kind of enables this online adaptation. Okay. You've referred to the device. Uh, Do you have devices in, have you created examples and what kinds of applications do you, like what's the application setting that you uh, are thinking about when you're creating these? So the devices um, I don't create, I'm actually collaborating with a lab in France. It's called Cealeti. So they kind of have these devices almost as an, in, in an industrial setting. Okay. So basically, so they have a CMOS or, or a silicon foundry. And then between, so in the CMOS foundry, you, you kind of integrate layer by layer, these layers that are required for creating a transistor and then putting metal layers on top to connect it to other transistors. And between the fourth and the fifth metal layer, they integrate these memristive devices. So I collaborate with them. And then we basically build circuits and architectures based on the data that we receive from them, the the third characteristic of the device. We design circuits that can interface with these memory devices that can implement a brain-inspired algorithm. Now, the applications that we're targeting are more in the realm of, let's say, biomedical signal processing for, let's say, personalized medicine applications. For example, it matches really well for online learning because every patient is different. For example, if you want to monitor someone's heartbeat or muscle activity, or brain activity, or whatever it is, it is much better to adapt the wearable device that you have to each patient based on exactly the biomedical signal that each patient has. Mm -hmm. So biomedical signal processing, for example, for wearable devices is one big application. Mm -hmm. The other applications are any application scenario that requires always-on monitoring, right? So also in the industrial application, people are thinking about, for example, monitoring engines. Yeah. So anything that requires always-on battery-operated monitoring of real-world signals. So it could also be temperature sensing, pressure sensing. A lot of people are working on keyword spotting, for example, for Alexa or Siri or any for smart homes, right? So whatever you have, these devices have to be always on operating, waiting for you to 
give them a command. So Mm -hmm. that would, if this kind of monitoring has to continuously be on, it has to be very power efficient because then otherwise it's continuously draining your battery. Got it. Got it. Got it. And so can you talk a little bit about the challenges of adapting online learning style algorithms to this hardware? Right. So online learning is a really difficult problem, actually, because <laughs> because you can imagine. So you don't have like stored data. It's not like you can so n- normally when you want to go and train a neural network, you just download this data set and just yeah. run it through your network. You don't have that. Like your data is just it's what is called like batch size one. Right. So it's it's just streaming as you go. Mm-hmm. And this, for example, has the problem that you don't have access to the past and you don't have access to the future so your algorithm has to be able to cope with temporal locality so information has to be locally available in time so that's let's say one challenge mm-hmm. and the other challenge is that for example backpropagation which is the basically workhorse of all training all neural networks it requires information when you want to backpropagate this area it requires information from all the synapses. And if you want to build that in hardware, you're going to blow up this entire system with wires because you would have to to update one synapse or one weight. You would have to take information from all the other synapses and kind of bringing it to this one synapse. Right. Kind of the fully connected problem. Exactly. So basically your whole architecture kind of blows up with wires. Mm -hmm. So this information has to be spatially locally available. So temporal locality, because you don't have access to the past and future, and spatial locality, because information of the update of a synapse or a weight has to be locally available to the synapse. So this is the second problem. Mm -hmm. The third problem is that also, you know, when you train your neural networks, you have this you have the luxury of using 32-bit floating point memory, mm-hmm. right? Like on GPU, you can just use, you know, any variable with, with anything you want. But if you want to have that on a hardware that is small, you can't just put a lot of memory there, right? Like you want to reduce the precision of your memory because your device is tiny and has to kind of sit next to your sensor. So you cannot have a big device. And because of that, then you have low-bit precision, so your memory or the weight basically has a lower bit, let's say four bits, or it has eight bits. Mm-hmm. And therefore, your learning rate is high, right? So because every time you want to make a jump, your jump would be, so you, let's say if you have four levels, you have four bits, you have 16 levels. So every time you make a jump, you're, you have, you're jumping one sixteenth of your entire memory range or your weight chain. Range, right. So that, that's another difficulty, right? And another thing is that, so let's say you calculate your gradient and your gradient has to, whatever it is, let's say with whatever bit precision you do, you have to kind of map that into your low bit precision memory. So that also becomes another problem. And in the talk, I'm kind of trying to say some of the potential solutions that we have worked on to tackle these three problems that I have just told you about. (laughs) Okay. Before we jump into those solutions, just to clarify the architecture that you're 
working with here, it's fully neuromorphic. It's not like you have this kind of memory bank that is you're swapping out the memory bank in a conventional von Neumann architecture with, no. you know, these fancy memoristors. You're trying to do all your computations in this hardware. Exactly. So every, so basically we are, so the idea is that you're kind of replacing the hardware with an end-to-end and neuromorphic hardware. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that it would completely replace the current hardware because the current hardware, of course, is great for offline learning. So basically, you know, whatever you have in the cloud is going to be a lot more powerful than what you have close to the sensor. Sure. So you can basically have a very power efficient, very low power edge device that is doing this always on monitoring. And when, let's say, it detects something that requires a more powerful processing, then it can maybe send a trigger to a more powerful machine, a computing machine mm-hmm. that is in the cloud, let's say, right? So uh, I guess I'm kind of struggling to think through how you kind of, I guess I'm thinking of like a bootstrapping type of problem, you know, on this hardware, like you've got this hardware, you don't have any operating system, you don't have any like higher level things or lower level things. Like how do you even start to work with it? Is it that you're interfacing with systems that you know how to control on the edges and and that's how you program it? So it's an end-to-end system. It's a very good question. It is difficult and it's actually not a solved problem. Okay. But basically the idea is that it's an end-to-end system. So it goes from sensor to processor and to actuator. So, or to something that gives you an output. Let's say Mm. I want to see, so I'm giving, my input is my my heartbeat. I give it to this processor, which is this neuromorphic processor. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of raises a flag and says, hey, you're going to have a heart attack. (laughs) Or I detected the keyboard or your engine is about to blow up (laughs) or or something like that. So basically it kind of, it's an end-to-end system. And so the control that you're exerting to get this thing to do what you want it to do is basically you're modulating the parameters of these memories, or basically this network that's on the thing. And Exactly. So your network basically sitting on the hardware. So your parameters of your neural network is basically sitting at the conductance of these devices physically. Mm-hmm. You have to map your, your weights into the conductance and you just give inputs and then, yeah. So your network is basically your hardware. Got it. Awesome. And so kind of jumping into this spatial locality challenge, how do you start to address that? Right. So basically, like I said, you have to have weight updates that are local to the synapse. So if you write down gradient descent, so the derivative of the cost function with respect to the weights, mm-hmm you can basically write it down as the multiplication of three factors. So one becomes, let's say, the derivative of the cost function with respect to your error, but with respect to your output, mm-hmm. the derivative of your output with respect to a hidden state, which is basically directly proportional to your weights, and then the derivative of that hidden state with respect to your weights. Mm-hmm. And this actually basically becomes activity of your presynaptic neuron. So activity of your the neuron, the previous layer, times the activity of the neuron in the postsynaptic neuron, so in, in the next layer, mm-hmm. times an error. So basically, pre and the post are local because every synapse is sitting between a pre and a postsynaptic neuron. 
So that information is local to the synapse. Times an error, which can come globally. So basically what you do is that you take the information that is local and then you multiply it by a global signal that is coming to you and you're calculating and then you calculate the weight update by and what we have done is that this actually was a, as a collaboration with University of California in Irvine with MBNFG and Mohammed Fuda so we realized that we can encode the error into events so basically whenever the error is let's say higher than a certain threshold we send an error event and we say now we have to update because there's an error that is higher than a certain threshold. And based on the information of pre and the post, then we have a local update information to update the, the synapse. So that was, let's say, one way of going around this spatial locality. Other ways that people have tried is basically that at each layer, so let's say you have a deep network. So at each layer, you employ these kind of local classifiers and these local classifiers at each layer are telling you what the output should be. Mm-hmm. And then based on that, then you calculate the error for that layer. And that kind of generates the error for that layer for you in a local manner. Hmm. One of the implications of the approaches you're describing that this kind of neuromorphic computation is happening asynchronously across the compute layers, more like a distributed system than you're just kind of rolling an error backwards across a... Exactly. So actually, one of the key points is that we want temporal sparsity, Mm -hmm. because like I said, you don't want the system to be continuously running, right? So you want this to only run when something happens, that something is basically an event, Mm -hmm. right? So you're encoding your signal into a train of events. So, and that is actually how, for example, the retina encodes information. So when I'm looking at this computer right now, it's not like my brain is taking frame by frame information. It just basically looks at what is changing and just encodes the change in time. Mm -hmm. And the same way you can use the same kind of encoding mechanism to take a signal. And then if it's nothing is happening, then you just don't encode anything. You don't send any input. Your processor is just sleeping. And then as soon as something is happening, depending on the rate of change of your input, you just you send this pulse density coding scheme. You send information basically asynchronously to the system. And the same thing can happen for learning. So you're streaming data, your system starts to kind of have an error, or it does have an error based on whatever the person is experiencing or the device under test is experiencing. And then whenever this error is high, you say you have to learn. This is the time to learn. And then based on the local information of the pre and the postsynaptic spike and postsynaptic activity, then you do an update and you you change the resistance of these members of devices basically on the fly. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you mentioned this previously, but is the use cases that you're describing are these fundamentally supervised problems where... Mm -hmm. You've got some target and that's how you create your error and kind of propagate that through? Or is it more of an unsupervised scenario? So we have actually worked on both. Okay. So the field of, it's actually interesting that you say, so field of neuromorphic engineering is kind of, let's say, linked to the 
spiking neural network field, right? Because, mm-hmm. because information is going into these chips in the form of spikes or events and then coming out of it. So it's like an end-to-end event-based system. And spiking neural networks for a long time, we have not had a good learning algorithm that can learn them. That's something a lot of people complain about. So for a long time, the field was kind of working with Hebean plasticity. So basically kind of working with correlation-based learning. So Mm -hmm. you change the weight just because of the correlation between the pre- and the postsynaptic activity. And so basically correlation-based learning Mm -hmm. without any error, without any guide in if you're doing good or you're doing bad. (laughs) And then the problem with uh, Habian learning is that it's also a greedy algorithm, right? So you, if things are correlated, your weight starts to go high, Mm -hmm. but then because this weight is now high, whenever an input comes, let's say the neuron that has the highest weight is always going to be the one that will have the highest activity and then its weights kind of grow more so basically it's kind of like a positive feedback process so you need a negative feedback to kind of keep things in check and in balance to make sure that all the neurons that you have in the system are kind of being part of the computation and it's not like just one greedy neuron that happen to have initial good initial condition that kind of just responds to everything. Mm-hmm. So you need kind of this negative feedback mechanism, which is kind of inspired also by some of the findings in neuroscience in terms of homeostatic plasticity. So homeostatic plasticity apparently is a negative feedback loop in neural networks in, in the brain that tries to keep the activity of the neurons within a certain range. So it doesn't let neurons to be very underactive, so to be completely silent, or to be really overactive. So it's just always tries to bring the neuron in a certain regime of operation. Okay. So we have kind of worked on kind of bringing this two Hebean learning and homeostatic plasticity together as like an unsupervised learning mechanism, mm. also for, for sequence learning. So we have also done that. Okay. But it helps to have error, I must say. It's a, <laughs> it always helps to have a guiding teacher that tells you where to go. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so we talked about the spatial locality. Can you talk a little bit about how you've approached the temporal locality problem? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, for temporal locality, so you would want to, what problem does it require temporal locality? For any input that requires, that has a temporal sequence, right? So Mm -hmm. if you don't have any temporal, if your data set has no temporal information, then you don't do this. But if if it does, then you need to keep some information. Okay. Apparently, in the brain, there is this kind of filtering mechanism which is called the eligibility traces. So interestingly, our neurons and synapses are kind of behave or acting in a time scale of the, in the order of tens to hundreds of milliseconds. So mm-hmm. they kind of keep this in from the information and integration. So they, then for about 10 to 100 milliseconds. But we are behaving in the real world in the timescales of seconds or tens of seconds, right? Mm -hmm. And if we want to learn anything, then the question is, how is this temporal gap closed? How is it that my brain is processing something, then I receive, let's say, say a reward or a punishment or some surprise some 10 seconds later? 
but then my brain knows which synapses to go and and change. Mm. So how is this temporal, what is causing this? So then apparently there's this kind of filtering mechanism called the eligibility traces, which are keeping the activity of the, let's say, the correlation between the pre and the postsynaptic neurons for tens of seconds. So it's kind of, you can think of it as an exponential decay filter, which its amplitude goes high and then decays within tens of seconds, but it keeps this information basically Mm -hmm. for that amount of time. And if within this like filtering time, filtering time constant, it receives a reward, then a neuromodulatory signal kind of reads this, let's say, eligibility trace and then changes the the corresponding synapses. Hmm. So, and then, so this is kind of like a neuroscience inspiration, let's say. Mm-hmm. But then some two years ago, a group in University of Graz, Guillaume Belek and co-authors, basically they realized that you can write down the back propagation through time algorithm as a multiplication of a learning signal and an eligibility trace. Hmm. And with an approximation that you forget about the future terms, because backpropagation has terms in the future, right? Because we basically feed the information to the activations. We keep all the activations and then we go back through time to see what activations were there. And based on that, we update, but we don't, we cannot do this. So if you approximate to kind of eliminate those future terms, you can still get good accuracy on a certain task. So they've tried it also on reinforcement learning tasks. So basically from, let's say, these eligibility traces, their usefulness are kind of seen in neuroscience and they're kind of also backed by by these experiments that this group did. We have implemented them in hardware using an interesting uh, solution because, so basically... At the end, what you need to solve temporal locality is a filter mm-hmm. that has a long time constant, okay? And this is mm-hmm. now backed by neuroscience and backed by math. <laughs> so... To throw some capacitors into your memristor thing? Exactly. But capacitors are really expensive mm. to have because they take a lot of space, especially if you want to keep information for a long time. You need to have a big capacitor. And if you ever want to have a big capacitor per synapse, then your area kind of blows up. Mm-hmm. So what we found was that there's this specific type of membership devices called phase change memories. And these phase change memories, basically how they work is that they change their state from amorphous state to a crystalline state. And that's basically their on and off state, right? So okay. it's an amorphous state. And then you apply a current, the device literally melts. And then it becomes crystallized and then its resistance drops. But interestingly, when these devices are in this amorphous state, they are not happy. They're not in a favorable glass state. So they, they start to kind of drift to a higher resistance. Mm-hmm. So, and this drift actually happens within the time constant that we like. So they, this drift okay. time constant is really in the order of tens of seconds. So then we realized that by one device that is in its amorphous state, we can implement these eligibility traces very efficiently. And basically that is, let's say, our our solution to this, to the implementation of this temporal locality problem. Okay. And so the idea then is for the applications that require this kind of temporal locality, you can see kind of market difference in performance with and without 
kind of your implementation of the eligibility traces? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So basically, without the eligibility trace, well, you either need to have a lot of memory to keep information, you know, in the past. Mm-hmm. If you don't have it, then you're not saving any temporal yeah. sequence or any temporal information. And if you want to, yeah, so then if you want to have a, let's say, efficient implementation with low area consumption, then this would be a potential solution to kind of just drift of PC and face change memory device in its hmm. amorphous state. Okay. And then the last challenge that you mentioned was dealing with the limited bit precision and the kind of coarse grain nature that, that that imposes. How do you deal with that? Yeah. So another, these devices, these membership devices, basically another good thing about them is that they have multiple states. It's not just an on and off state. So they can have multiple resistance states. But it's not analog. I mean, the hope or the dream is that they are analog, but but they're not really. So the reason why it cannot be analog is because of basically physics. So when a device does resistive switching, what happens is that there, so you have two electrodes and then you have a, let's say, membristive layer in between. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have an oxide in between. For example, in the case of oxide-based devices that has some oxygen deficiencies. And these deficiencies kind of respond to electric fields. So these deficiencies are charged. So they respond to, to electric field and they create a filament. So basically these kind of ions, they create a filament from one electrode to another And that's how the resistance kind of lowers, because then you kind of creating a conductive path from a conductive filament or a path from one electrode to another, and then the resistance drops. And the resistance of this device then depends on the geometry of this filament. The thicker it is, then the lower the resistance, because then these two electrodes are very well connected. And the less the diameter of this filament, the resistance is higher. So if you can kind of try to control this filament growth, you know, you can kind of get the device to show its good state. So you can you can kind of control the state of the device. So that's what one thing we did. And the thickness of the path, this is also non-volatile? Yes, exactly. So basically, let's say the thick, um, you program the device with a certain, let's say, geometry of the filament. Mm-hmm. And I and I will say how we do that. And then it just stays that way. Okay. So it's not volatile. So one way that you can control the, let's say, the geometry of this filament is by how much current you push to it when you're programming the device. So when you want to change the state of the device, the more current you push, your push, the, this filament kind of grows thicker. So we realized that if we basically map the error of our system at the error of the network to a current, then we can say, hey, if the error is high, that means that the device has to change more. So its filament has to change more. And if the error is lower, then you can have like push less current because that means that the device has to change less. So this is basically what we mean by co-design because now you're really taking a algorithm level concept, which is error of a network, and you're really bringing it into a current that is changing a device filament 
you know, like, so it's just kind of telling, and error is really changing how the ions move in a physical system. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. But moreover, I guess the impression I have is that in kind of normal operation, this, you would be applying the current in a programming phase up front, but this error, when you're trying to, when you're using the technique that you're describing, are you applying the current like during the operation of the device? Because we're talking about online learning. So there's... Uh-huh, right, right. Yes, that's a good question. And this is something that is not solved yet. So basically, while you're programming the device, you're missing input. Right. So basically, let's say your hardware kind of goes into learning mode. Mm-hmm. And for that, whatever microseconds that you are... Because that these devices actually change their state very fast. Okay. So you just have to apply a pulse that is in the order of maximum a microsecond. Okay. But in that microsecond, whatever input you're receiving is getting tossed away. You're not okay. You're not receiving it. Yeah. Yeah. I was imagining something more like a EEPROM where it was taking a much longer time to program. No, no, no. The, yeah, exactly. These devices are very, very digi. The programming time, the access time and the programming time are very low. So basically, Got it. you can even go to nanoseconds or hundreds of nanoseconds. Oh, wow. wow. And so you introduced this by talking about this analog versus digital, like you wanting to get to full analog, but not really. Can you, how does that tie into this, the mechanism you're describing? So the, basically this whole computation is really analog, right? Because you are... Mm-hmm. So let's say just for doing multiplication and addition, it's not like you have digital gates that are doing the multiplication and and you have an adder that is doing the adder. So it's just really the physics of the device that is doing this for you. And that's kind of, that's basically analog computation. So I thought you were saying that you want it to be full analog, but you can't get it to be full analog or it's not full analog today. Right. So the computation is analog Mm -hmm. and it's basically locally analog. But then when you want to communicate this information to other parts of the chip or to other neurons, mm-hmm. then you go to, to events or spikes, which is then digital. And that's basically where the mixed signal design comes into play. So your, okay. your computation is really locally analog, but then it's digital communication through spikes. Okay. Because when you want to send out information, if you want to send out analog information, that's very difficult because you, if an analog signal has to go through a path or a distance, then this distance is kind of dissipating your analog signal, right? So you would have to put like drivers that is pushing enough current so that this analog, precise analog value can stay wherever it is. And that requires, again, a lot of power a lot of space for these kind of buffers and amplifiers that you have to employ for for doing this. And therefore, it's good that if you want to communicate a signal to go digital and then send out your information in a digital way to another neuron as a voltage pulse, and this that voltage pulse, again, goes through the membranes, becomes a current, and then gets integrated in an analog fashion in the next neuron. So, So you go from analog to digital and back to analog. Wow. So you've overcome these three key challenges that you mentioned in the beginning. Are there other pieces that are required or what other pieces are required to bring it all together so that you can actually do online learning? So I think that so currently 
what we're still missing is kind of scalability. So, mm. so scalability both in terms of algorithms, so algorithms that can, so all of these, let's say, kind of hacks that I've mentioned to you, <laughs> they work maybe for two, three layers. Mm-hmm. But if you want to kind of go deeper, then they don't work because there's a lot of approximation that is involved which if you want to go to to larger networks, they don't, they're not going to work. So so basically we need scalability in terms of algorithms and we need scalability in terms of hardware. So these kind of devices are still kind of maturing, although they have kind of emerged really exponentially fast in the past, you know, five years, but they're still kind of emerging. There's a lot of, let's say, problems in terms of noise, bit precision, devices basically these devices that you have they have a lot of variability between them so they they don't all work the same they have also noise in time so every time you program the device it doesn't so let's say if you set and reset the device like 100 times it kind of sits on a gaussian distribution in terms of the state it ends up in mm-hmm. so it kind of it's it's noisy yeah actually a lot of people even try to exploit for example, for, for Bayesian computation, right? So let's say like it brings you like a search space yeah. in a way. So you, every time you set and reset, it's kind of, you're kind of sampling from these distributions. Hmm. So I would say this is like basically scaling, I would say, is the main problem in terms of algorithm and hardware. Mm-hmm. And how close are we from seeing this in kind of practical use are we there already you know in some ways or long way out what's your take on that so actually there's some startups out even from institute of neuroinformatics that are trying to take this to the market but they're still working in the digital domain okay if you want to go analog um, a lot of people are are doing it in in the world so i think it would be something i would say maybe five years plus Mm-hmm. If you want to go to the market, because there is still really a research field mm-hmm. of trying to like, you know, bringing all of these concepts from five different fields together yeah. while the technology is still emerging, I would say it, it still has time. It requires time. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. By the time folks hear this, you will have delivered your keynote at the workshop, which I'm sure will be super interesting for folks, but best of luck. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm looking forward to, to the conference and, and seeing and chatting about these concepts with peers. And I hope your audience likes this concept also. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Malika. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.